All right, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open them to Psalm 126. If you don't, we should have a Bible in front of you somewhere. Uh, and you could just open to the middle of the Bible and you'll be really close to Psalm 126. Uh, Psalm, it, Psalms are the biggest book in the Bible. And uh, we're uh, towards the end of the Psalms there in chapter 126. We are continuing our Advent series uh, this year in December. We're looking at the four Advent themes, which are joy, peace, hope, and love. And today we're looking at the theme of hope. And hope is uh, a, a really important Advent theme because it goes with what Advent is all about. And that is waiting. Now, what we've done is we've kind of combined Christmas and Advent. Uh, Christmas is, is just something that lasts all the time now. You know, most holidays we celebrate one day. At my house, we celebrate Christmas for two months. Uh, it's just constant Christmas music. Decorations are up. All the time we're celebrating Christmas. And what we've done is we've kind of replaced Advent with Christmas. But that's actually a huge mistake because Advent is supposed to be a time of waiting and a time of anticipation. That's what we're doing. When we're celebrating Advent, we're looking back at the Old Testament. and We're looking at how the people of God waited for thousands of years for the Messiah to come. And then we're looking forward to the second Advent, the one in which Jesus comes back and he makes everything right. And we find ourselves now in this period of waiting and and wondering when it's going to be. When will all the tears finally be dried? When will all the suffering finally come to an end? And that is why I say hope is especially important. Because hope is the only one of these themes that we will no longer experience once Jesus comes. Once Jesus arrives, we will have no need for hope. Now, when he arrives, we'll certainly experience more joy than ever, more peace than ever, more love than we've ever experienced. We can't even imagine how much of those things we will experience. But we will no longer need hope. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 24 and 25. He says, now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. It's kind of like when I was a kid, I asked for a go-kart every year. Uh, probably from like, as long as I could talk, I just started asking for a go-kart. I wanted a go-kart, and I never got it. I would always hope all throughout the Advent season, there's going to be a go-kart out there. And there never was a go-kart out there until one year, I opened all my presents, my siblings got way more than me, and I was mad. I, mean, I wasn't just sad, I, I, I was mad. I thought, I, first off, I'm the best kid in this house. <laughs> and this is not right. You know, I, I should have got more gifts. And, and my dad said, Blake, will you just go check the front door? And I thought, oh, now you're going to give me a chore to do. Well, that's rich. Uh, so I go and I go check the front door. I look through the glass and guess what I see? I, I couldn't believe it. It was like a dream. There was my go-kart. And all of a sudden, I no longer had hope. You know what I had? I had joy. Joy was bursting out of me because I finally got what I was waiting for. That's what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back and he reveals himself. We will no longer need hope. We'll be bursting with joy because it has finally happened. Christmas is finally here. But in the meantime, what we need to survive is hope. And I do think hope is essential to our survival. Uh, You know, just like food is essential. You can go a few weeks without food before you die. Or or you can maybe even just go a few days without water before you die. You can only go a few minutes without oxygen before you die. But you can't go very long without hope. Somebody who has begun to despair of life itself is in grave danger. Hope is essential for this journey that we find ourselves on. If you don't have hope in this dark world, you are one who is in real trouble. And what causes our hopelessness? Well, I think we see uh, at least three things in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, which I read for you at the beginning of our service today. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. And here's who he's giving good news to. He's giving good news to hopeless people. And there's three categories. Good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. The poor, the brokenhearted, and the captives. When you're poor, you certainly feel hopeless. And this is true financially. Uh, I love what Zig Ziglar says. He says, some people say to me that money isn't the most important thing in life. And they are correct. Money isn't the most important thing in life, but it's reasonably close to oxygen. If you don't believe me, try to live without it. And I love that because that's so true. Like money is something that doesn't matter if you have it, but if you don't have it, and you can begin to feel hopeless. And we live in a world in which uh, we have socialism on the bottom where everybody who doesn't work can get whatever they want pretty much. So we have to pay taxes in the middle because those on the top are corrupt politicians. And so we are pinched in both ways. That's not a political statement. That's just the truth of life. If you had to buy milk this last year, you probably spent $300. That's the kind of world we live in. And what can it begin to feel like? It can begin to feel hopeless. Like I'm never going to make enough. There's always going to be more month than there is money. This is just true. I went and watched uh, Willy Wonka uh, this past week. And uh, one of the things that uh, is said to Willy over and over is, is Willy, it's just the way the world works. The rich get, uh, what does he say? He says it in kind of a rhymey way. He says, the greedy get rich off of the needy. The greedy get rich off the needy. And that's just the way the world is. What is that statement? That is a statement of hopelessness. When you're poor, you think there's not enough. Now, I'm talking financially, but it's true in all of life, isn't it? That we can feel poor, that we can feel squeezed from the top and the bottom, and like there's just not enough of us to go around. And maybe you feel this way as a parent. If I'm honest, sometimes I do. Like I'm insecure and inadequate to do this job that God has given me. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying my best day in and day out, but I do not know. And sometimes I feel like there's not enough of me to go around. Or, Or maybe it's at your job. Honestly, I love you guys, but sometimes I feel this way at my job. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. There's a, a story from the French Revolution where there's this guy and he was chasing after a mob. And somebody said, why are you chasing that mob? And he said, because I'm their leader. And that is how I feel. Sometimes I feel like people look to me for leadership and I'm just running after this thing. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just trying my best to trust God day in and day out. Maybe you feel that way at your job. You know, we feel poor. And ultimately, the greatest poor that we have is, is death itself, that we cannot overcome this thing called life. None of us get out of this thing alive. We feel poor. And when we feel poor, we feel hopeless. The second category is, is the brokenhearted. And maybe that's some of you here today, the brokenhearted. And just think about what that term is. That somebody's heart, somebody's spirit, somebody's soul has been broken. And this is what it is to despair. They've done studies uh, back before uh, PETA was around. They could do studies on animals that were cruel. And one of the studies that they did was they took a dog, a, a series of dogs, actually. And, and every time the dog would approach its food, they would hit the dog on the nose with something. And they said it took 20 hits. And after 20 hits of hitting the dog when they approached their food, the dog would lay down and starve to death. He would no longer even attempt to come to his food. Why? Well, because he was hopeless. There was no point. He had lost all hope. His heart, his soul was broken. Uh, the, the Nazis in the concentration camps would make the Jews carry 50-pound bags of sands on their shoulders, and they would put them in a, in a fenced area, and they told them just to walk back and forth. Why would they have them walk just back and forth? Because they wanted them to see how meaningless it was and eventually break their spirit, break their soul, so that they would despair of life itself. We have a broken heart. We are a hopeless people. And maybe that's some of you today. Your heart is broken. And when your heart is broken, if you've ever known somebody or you've suffered yourself with depression, you know that getting out of bed in the morning can be something that is almost an impossible task because you have no hope. Like the dog who's been on the hit on the nose 20 times, you know there's no point in facing life itself. And then the third category is the captives. 
And I think we've all probably experienced this in some way, shape, or form. You just feel trapped. Trapped by whatever life has come at you. Maybe it's a health issue. The doctor said you're not going to die, but you're going to have to live with it for the rest of your life. And there's nothing they can do to make it better. And so you're stuck in this situation where you are captive and you see no way out of it. You are hopeless. Maybe it's a legal issue or or somebody you love or you yourself are are trapped in addiction. And it's like nothing they do can, can get them out of addiction. They are trapped. They're held captive to this. Maybe you have a child with special needs and you know that when they turn 18, that doesn't mean you're done. You're going to have the rest of your life to care for this child that is in your care, given to you by God, and you feel held captive. What is that, friends? That is hopelessness. You want to know what hopelessness is? It is when you feel poor, broken, and held captive. Now, this would be a very sad Christmas sermon if I ended here. But did you see what Isaiah 61 started with? He said that he has good news to proclaim, good news to proclaim. There is hope to be had. And we see what Christian hope looks like in our psalm today, which is Psalm 126. There are three things that we must do when we are feeling hopeless, when we are feeling held captive or or poor, like there's just not enough of us to go around. Number one is we worship in the waiting. Number two, we remember what God has done. And number three, we embrace, not just endure, but we embrace the valleys of life. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump into our psalm. Father God, I pray that you would do a special work in this place. God, I know that in a room this size, there are people who come in here and they are brokenhearted. There are people in this room who are feeling as if they have no reason for hope. God, would you do what only you can do? Would you give them hope? God, even if it's the kind of hope that we see about in Romans chapter 4, where we're hoping against hoping, we would just have a morsel of hope. God, would you just give us a mustard seed, just our daily bread of hope as we leave this place today? God, I pray that you would help me see these people the way you see them. And I pray that they would be able to hear the words you want them to hear through this message. God, it is in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Number one is we, we have to worship while we wait. Now, Psalm 126, if you look at it at the top of your Bible, it will tell you what kind of psalm it is. And it is a song of ascent. That's what it should say at the top of the psalm. Uh, so this psalm was actually meant to be sung. I'm not going to sing it for you because I love you. And you would not want to hear me sing it. But that is the way that the psalm was actually written. It is meant to be sung. And a psalm of ascent, not because he wrote it for our church plant, but because he wrote this song for the Jews who would be traveling to Jerusalem for one of the annual festivals. And so they would sing these songs on the way to Jerusalem. They sang them on the journey, which is a great metaphor for our life. But we have to sing while we're on the journey. We don't wait till we get to the destination to sing. We begin to sing now. We worship while we wait. This is something that the Bible talks about over and over. And why do we do this? How does it give us hope? Well, number one, it forces us to take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on God. When we were just singing those songs, you know what I was thinking about? I wasn't thinking about my problems anymore. I was thinking about God. I was thinking about how he is the name above all names, how powerful and wonderful he is. And friends, when I take my eyes off of myself and I begin to put them on God, I have reason for hope. But when I just look at what I don't have, I find no reason for hope. And so when we sing, when we praise God, we are placing our hope on God. The second way it helps us is it allows us to borrow the hope of others. I saw this quote from a scientist. I always love when scientists catch up to what the Bible says. Uh, This lady named Daniela Samler talked about what happens when humans sing together. She said when people coordinate their actions, for example, when they dance or sing together, their brain waves synchronize as well which is really interesting and kind of terrifying to think about. I don't know if I want my brainwaves synchronized with some of you guys. <laughs> but that's exactly what happens. We get on the same wavelength. You know what that means? That means that we begin to borrow each other's hope. I might come in here and not have hope, but I can borrow your hope. 
when I begin to sing. And when I have extra hope and you don't have hope, my duty is to sing. You know why? Because it's giving you hope. I think this is why it's commanded in the Bible. It's not a suggestion. It is a command that we sing. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, the Apostle Paul says, And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. How do I get filled by the Spirit? Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Or Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So this is a command, not a suggestion. Some of you don't sing. Uh, some of you, you know, you, you do sing, but it's like you're barely moving your lips and it's, it looks like you're in pain while you sing. And I, I just want to tell you guys that you need to get over yourself because this is a command from God. It's not that Blake just wants to hear you guys sing. Some of you guys, I don't want to hear sing. You don't sound good, myself included. I double check my microphones off five times before I start singing. You don't want to hear me. I don't want to hear you, but we're commanded to do it. We're commanded to sing. And by the way, it's not just about you. Sometimes people say, the reason I don't sing is I don't like the songs. I, I like the old hymns. Or, or this, I like the new songs. I can't get into to the old hymns. Well, you know what? Frankly, I don't care what you can get into or not get into. That's why they have KGIL on the radio. You can get a playlist on your iPod. Listen to whatever you want on your own time. But when we're here together, we're not singing because we're like what is being sung. We're singing because God told us to sing to one another. So whatever we sing is what we sing. And we ought to sing because God told us to sing. And it's not about us. It's a way that we love one another. We allow other people to borrow our hope. Was I too clear about that? I don't know. (laughs) Ultimately, when we do worship this way, it makes our faith shine through. And God loves to answer this kind of faith. Uh, One of my favorite stories in the book of Acts is from chapter 16. Uh, Paul and Silas are in prison and it doesn't look good. And yet God shows up and delivers them. But before he delivers them, look at what Paul and Silas are doing. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and every chains came loose. Wow, that's powerful. See, because I understand singing after the earthquake comes and you're freed. I mean, singing just comes out of you naturally in that moment. But when were they singing? They were singing before the deliverance. Friends, that is a mark of our faith. This is what has made Christians weird to every other religion and every other people group for as long as we've been around. And that is we are a singing people. And we don't just sing when things are good. We sing when things are bad, especially when things are bad. We are a singing people. You know why? Because we have faith. And our faith in God leads to us having hope, even when it looks like everything around us is hopeless. That's number one. We worship while we wait. Number two is we remember what God has done. That's exactly what happens in verses one through three. They're remembering what God has already done in the past. Verse one, it says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. We couldn't believe it. It was amazing what had happened. Like this is really happening. The doctor really said we had cancer and we went and we prayed and we came back and the doctor really said the cancer is not there anymore. It was like a dream. That's the kind of deliverance he's talking about. Verse two, our mouths were filled with laughter then. Our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord had done great things for us. We were joyful. I've heard it said in a a business aspect that the best predictor of future behavior is past performance. If you want to look at what's going to happen in the future, look at what has already happened. And I think that's not just true for businesses. That's true for people. That's true for God himself. 
But like, I know you said you're, you're going to show up at, at my, uh, my thing, dad, but you haven't shown up the last seven times you said it. So you know what? I don't believe you're actually going to show up this next time. That's the kind of thing that's going on here. And yet with our heavenly father, what do we find? We find a God who has been faithful over and over and over again. And so why do I know that God's going to show up again? Because he's already shown up in the past. And what did I learn? Well, I learned that God has done it so that God can do it. And if God can do it, then God will do it. That's the kind of faith and hope I can have in this God because he's proven himself faithful. And the way that we build that faith in us is by remembering, by calling back. And there's just three ways that I came up with that we remember practically. Number one is we gather for worship. This is what we're doing every single week. You know why we do this on a seven-day rhythm? Because you need it. By the end of the sixth day, you need to be reminded again of God's grace and mercy and goodness towards you. Because life will beat you. Life will suck everything out of you. And if you've lived for more than, I don't know, five minutes, you probably know that to be true. This is the way it is. So what do we do? We gather to encourage one another and to build our hope in God. That's exactly what Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says. It says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. That's why you come every week and you hear the gospel. You hear what God has done for you in this cosmic sense, this eternal sense. And when you understand what God has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ, it leads you to have hope in the much smaller things of life. That we could all agree with the Apostle Paul at the end of a worship service in Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? That is the kind of hope we get when we worship together. The second way that you can build hope in God is to read the Bible. The reason why I want you to read the Bible is not because I want you to be really good at Bible drill or so that you know a whole bunch of random facts about the Bible. I actually despise those trivia games where it's just a bunch of random Bible facts. That does nothing for you except make you an arrogant Christian kid punk. And you've probably met some of those kids who just, they know everything about the Bible, but there's no love or peace or joy in their heart. That's not why we read the Bible. We read the Bible so that we know the stories. You know why? Because the stories are real. They're not just stories about what God has done. They're stories about the same God who works in my life and what he has done so that I can have hope for what he's going to do. When I read about the God who helped David defeat a giant, when I read about the God who gave Noah an ark, when I read about the God who promised Abraham a child and then gave him a child, you know what I'm reading about? I'm reading about the same God that I'm praying to right now in 2023. And I see the power of God as I read his word and it builds my faith and what he can do in my life and what he'll ultimately do at the end of my life. And and as we get to the New Testament, we see that the same power that was in Jesus Christ himself resides in us. Romans 8, 11, one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible. It says, if the spirit of him, him being Jesus, who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. And as Christians, we ought to rejoice at that. The same spirit that rose the body of Jesus resides in me. That same power is available. And then finally, the last way we remember what God has done is, is we need to retell the stories of God's faithfulness in our own life. How easy is it for us to praise God for something and then move right on to the next problem? How often do you go back and remember what God has done for you? I was thinking about it this week and uh, just thinking about how Taylor and I, when we first got married, we always wanted a family. I've always wanted to be a dad. It's like my, uh, my number one goal in life. I know it's normal for like girls to want to be moms, but I always wanted to be a dad. I don't know why, but I did. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And for the first four years of our marriage, nothing, you know, no family, no children. And then God showed up and he answered the prayer. 
And then we got Blakely Grace in October of 2022. And named her Blakely Grace. The grace is because she's God's undeserved favor to us. We wanted to always remember that. Every time we said her name, I wanted to be reminded that that was a gift from God to me so that I would rejoice because I knew parenting was going to be hard sometimes. And so when I'm mad at her and I'm saying, Blakely Grace, I, I want to remember, it's grace. She's my undeserved favor. She's my gift from God that I did not deserve. And then the next year, in August, I got the unexpected gift of Hannah coming into our home. And so I went four years with no kids, and then two years, I had two for two. And I've already told God, that's good. We don't need to go three for three. Two's good. (laughs) But do you know what the name Hannah means? The name Hannah literally means grace. The most famous story in the Bible about a person named Hannah is about a, a girl who couldn't have a child. And then she gets her child, Samuel, and she rejoices and she says, thank you, God, for this gift that you've given me. How cool is that? That both of my, my girls in my home are named Grace. They both remind me of God's undeserved favor. But if I'm not careful, I can forget that. And what was yesterday's blessing can become today's burden. And so I've got to retell it. I've got to tell you about what God has done. I've got to tell myself about what God has done. Because when I do, it gives me faith and it builds my hope. That's number two. Remember what God has done. And finally, number three is we embrace the valley. Now notice I didn't say endure it. We don't just endure our suffering. We embrace our suffering. We believe God is going to bring good things out of our suffering. A lot of times you listen to Christians and they sound very defeated. This is why we don't do testimony time at Ascent. Because I grew up and, and sometimes I go to testimony time and it's just a bunch of old people whining. Uh, that's what it was. You know, they'd stand up and it wasn't a testimony. It was more like a prayer request. You know, it's like, um, Brother Bob lost his toe to diabetes. And Bertha's hemorrhoids are back. You know, it's just... <laughs> but we trust in the Lord. We're going to be victorious. You know, it's like, if that's the Christian life at the end of this deal, I don't, don't know if I want it or not. It doesn't sound very victorious. It doesn't sound very great. I probably shouldn't have said that, but I did. That's not the picture we get in the Bible, though. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus says, and also... I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not overpower it. Now I don't know how you read that, but I always read that for some reason as if we were the ones behind the gate and hell was beaten on the gate and and it was going to be scary, but hell wasn't going to break through. We were going to make it. You know, the gate was going to stand. But did you notice whose gates are being beat on in this? It's the gates of hell. We're the ones beating on hell's gates and those gates are coming down. We are not merely surviving. We are thriving. We are winning. We are victorious in all things. And this is most true as we see in our suffering. See, what the cross shows me is that when Satan thought he had won because Jesus had died, it was really the defeat of Satan himself. That was the worst thing that could have ever happened to Satan. And the same is true in our own lives. Our suffering only makes us stronger. It actually only fulfills God's purpose. It's true what Genesis 50 says when it says that what is meant for evil, God uses for good. We see this all over the New Testament. I'll just give you one example. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. James says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Why? Well, verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. The only thing suffering can do is make me more mature. The only thing suffering can do is make me more like Jesus. I cannot lose. And when I have that kind of faith, it gives me great hope. And that's what we see in our psalm, verses 4 through 6. And if the band wants to go ahead and come back up, I'm getting close to finished. It says, Restore our fortunes, Lord, like water gives in the Negev. 
Those who sow in tears, this is beautiful. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping and carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy carrying his sheaves. I love that picture that he gives us, that my tears are like seeds that go into the ground. And one day, something beautiful is going to come out of it. Friends, this is our hope as Christians, that none of our suffering, no matter how pointless it is, is wasted by God. And the truth is, sometimes we get to see that. Sometimes you suffer and you don't know why. And then God shows you and you're like, oh, that's why you didn't answer that prayer. Oh, that's why this thing happened. You get to see how God is working in a glorious way. But sometimes, friends, you don't on this side of eternity. Uh, My wife lost her mother at 13 years old, and I cannot figure out why. I cannot find the good in it. But you know what I do is I trust that my God is faithful. I trust that every tear that has been sown will one day reap a shout of joy. That one day, a thousand years from now, even though I have no comprehension of how it could possibly be possible in this moment, I will look back at that and go, God, you are so good. That there would be shouts of joy. This is why it is essential, friends, that we have an eternal perspective. I've talked a lot about this life and the hope that we have in this life. And I want you to get deliverance in this life. I want you to be healed. I want your marriage to get better. I want you to find financial freedom. Whatever you're suffering through, I'm not trying to say that those are small things. But what I am saying is that you've got to put your hope in your ultimate deliverance. The ultimate deliverance that is to come after this life. On the way up here, I was listening to Chip Ingram on the radio. uh, And Chip was sharing a story about great hope. And uh, it was such a beautiful story that I I wanted to close with it on on the way up. uh, When I was coming up, I had a different closing. But I I decided I I wanted to close with this story. Chip was talking to a person in his church, a man who had shared something that had happened in his life in this year. He said, my daughter was three years old and uh, we found out she had asthma. And asthma wasn't too bad. It was something that they said was very manageable. But then all of a sudden this past summer, she had a massive asthma attack, a horrible asthma attack. And uh, we called 911 and I had my little baby girl and I started giving her CPR and I kept trying and trying and trying and trying. But by the time the ambulance had gotten there, my baby girl had already died in my arms. Chip said, I don't know how you continue on. What is, what is keeping you going? And he said, my only hope is that I'm going to see my baby girl again in heaven one day. That is what keeps me going. It's not my perspective in this life because there's nothing good that I see in this life. But my ultimate hope is that one day I will see her again. I have an eternal perspective. He said the verse that he hung on to was Romans 8.18. And that's what I want to close with. That one day the Apostle Paul says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Father God, we pray for that kind of faith. God, we pray for that kind of faith because that is the only kind of faith that will lead to true and lasting hope. God, we thank you that you give us that hope through Christ Jesus. Friends, if you would, with your eyes closed and head bowed, just take about 10 seconds and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father God, I pray that you would minister to your people in a way that only you can. Give them hope that only you can give. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing.